Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about 1 Samuel again today. If I get this situated quite the way I want it here. Um, you know, as I was thinking about the Bible, and there's a, um, there's a couple different things. When, when we come to the Bible and we read it, sometimes we can take the, the very minutia of detail. And uh, the, the Bible is so rich that the, every little word, every little phrase, every little verse has a tremendous amount of meaning uh, an application to our lives, and uh, but also on the other hand, sometimes we can t- we when we come to the Bible, instead of looking at the detail, we can also look at the grand story of the Bible, and uh, that's what we're going to do do today. Um, the idea of story has always fascinated. I shouldn't say always; it's recently fascinated me, um, because when we look at a story, whether it's a novel or uh, a Bible story, or whatever it may be, what we do is we get a glimpse into maybe one individual character's life across a period of time, or into the mind of an individual for, or it's through a certain crisis, or, or whatever it may be. But that story, because we live our lives in moments of time, and sometimes we, the, front, the, the past and the present uh, is, is, is kind of escapes us, but story allows us to give a, uh, uh, to see how characters and whatnot react to different situations, and uh, we can learn an awful lot. I think about uh, even um, uh, Stephen when he was martyred, remember in Acts chapter 7? Just a grand narrative of all the history of Israel trying to make a, a, a defense of Jesus as being the Messiah. Um, he used story even in that sense. And so we're going to look at a story today out of 1 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. So if you can turn your in to 1 Samuel... And um, we're not going to read all of it, uh, but we're going to read significant portions, and I'll try to fill in the, the details of the story as we go. Just set the historical context just very quickly here for you again. Um, the nation of Israel has left Egypt. The nation of Israel then uh, attempted to possess the land, uh, did possess most of the land, uh, the promised land, but not all of it. They drove out most of the enemies, but not all of them. Uh, and that was the, the book of Joshua. Then we come to the book of Judges, and we have a, uh, uh, Israel falling into uh, uh, just a life apart from God, and then God raising up leaders like Samson, Gideon, and so forth, and then this just, just cycles. And when we come to 1 Samuel, we were at the end of those judges, the judges period. Samuel himself uh, is considered uh, the, the final judge by, by many. Um, and few weeks ago, I guess it's a couple months ago, we talked about uh, the story of Hannah and, uh, and Samuel, and we saw the sovereignty of God working in, in that story. And if there, there's a tension in theology, it's between the sovereignty of God, how can God bring about what He wants in this world, but yet we still have free will? And I'm not going to attempt to try to resolve that today, but what I do want to say is that the story that we're going to look at today we're going to be looking at the free will of men, and uh, uh, the focus is going to be on, some, on the boys Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's boys, and, and the entire house of Eli, and uh, the free will that they chose to use, and uh, God responded in the way He so chose. So, let's start with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, let me just stop for a second here. Some of you, if you have the King James, I think, translates that, sons of Belial. Uh, 
Belial was a term, it, it later became to become a proper name, but it really was just at this point when it, the book was written, it just meant worthless men. But these were worthless men. Interestingly enough, this is in contrast, that same phrase, that same term is used in 1 Samuel 1.16 when Hannah seemed to indicate that uh, she was concerned that Eli was thinking that she was a worthless woman when she was praying. Remember when she was praying for a son? Uh, and in, in an interesting twist now, Eli's sons are called the worthless men. Um, they did not know the Lord. Verse 13, And the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, and the men despised the offering of the Lord. So what we have here is the priests, Eli and Hophni, or excuse me, Hophni and Phinehas, they had these servants, and they instructed them to when the, the, the people of Israel came and sacrificed and, and gave an offering, and that's a, I think that's a key idea here is that the Israelites were to come and offer their sacrifices. And certainly in a portion, some of the sacrifices, the, the priest would get a portion of the meat. But instead of waiting for the offer to give the portion of meat to uh, Hophni and Phinehas' uh, servants, they would take it from them. And so much even so that even before they would even uh, boil the meat or roast the meat, they wanted the meat. They wanted the raw portion and including the fat. And that was a real problem because of what God had already commanded uh, in the book of Le- Leviticus. Um, I've been reading through the book of Leviticus in my devotions. It's not one of those that you typically... <laughs> anybody else with me in the book of Leviticus? I come on my, on my own on that one. Huh? But if, as, you re- as I've been reading through the book of Leviticus, there's the, the, the sacrificial system. Number one, it's very intricate. It's very complex. It's, uh, there's all kinds of different categories of offerings. I, I, I don't even think theologians could even agree on the categories. I've seen uh, different commentaries and even the categories of, of how they place them uh, are different. But the point is this. Uh, there were very specific guidelines that God gave to the nation of Israel, to the priests, to the house of Aaron on how these were to be carried out. And one of the things was the fat was always belonged to God. The fat was to give, be given to God. And here we have uh, Hophni and Phineas, Phineas instructing them to take this and really basically making a complete mockery of the sacrificial system. And when, we, when you think about the sacrificial system, I'm not going to go into this a whole lot, but I think that several things do come, uh, come out when you, read, when you read about the sacrificial system. And one is this idea that God is holy. I mean, when you look at the very minute detail of not just the sacrifices, but also of how the tabernacle was to be made and presented and whatnot, God had very precise uh, details of how this was to be carried out. And just the idea of the sacrificial system of, of, of man being sinful, 
that there was some reconciliation to God that was needed, uh, was, had to be on the forefront of every time a sacrifice was made or should have been on the forefront of the mind of the Israelites. And um, that the, the idea of the atonement for sin comes at a high price. The atonement for sin comes at a very high price. Blood had to be spilled. So this was really the sin of Hophni and Phinehas. They were, as we're going to see just a moment, they were kicking at the sacrifices is the phrase that is used in Scripture here in just, in just a few minutes. G.K. Chesterton said something like, um, there are many ways in which one, which one can fall down, but only one in which they can stand straight. Many angles in which one can fall down, but only one in which they can stand straight. And these boys fell down. <laughs> they were missing the mark. Now, as we go through this story, another thing that um, um, is interwoven in this is the narrative of, of Samuel continues to kind of build steam. And so we're talking about Hophni and Phinehas, the text is. But as we, as we go through here, I want to just follow a few verses. Look at verse two, verse, chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. That's talking about Samuel. And then again down in verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And then in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And then the entire chapter 3 is talking about uh, the boy Samuel and his calling to God. My point is this. I think the, the, the author here of 1 Samuel is trying to make a real comparison between the uh, unrighteousness of Eli in his house versus the righteousness of Samuel and the person that, he is, that God is going to raise up. We see this even in a bigger way, this, this contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness. If you read in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, the, the prayer of Hannah, you're going to see that idea come out. You're going to see it in a big way in the whole book of 1 Samuel because the, the 1 Samuel starts with Sam, Samuel and ends with David. And in between there we have Eli, Eli's house as well as the story of Saul, which is also not such a... Not such a uh, encouraging story from the life of Saul. So, um, so it's kind of interesting, I think, how, how the author does that. Now, back to Hophni and Phinehas, or Eli. Uh, let's look down at verse 22, and let's look at Eli, the father of Hophni and Phinehas. Phinehas look at, let's look at his response. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, for which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now, on the surface, and maybe even a little further than the surface, it seems to be that Eli is doing the right thing. I mean, he, he is calling what they are doing wrong. Um, there's two things that I think figure into this, because Eli is going to be, um, it's going to be Eli's house. It's not going to be just Hophni and Phinehas, but the, the judgment's going to come down to Eli for his house. We'll see that in just a minute. But I think two things we need to keep in mind here. 
Number one, they are living under a theocracy. Okay, we are under a period of grace. They are under a theocracy. And there was specific, and in, 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 we won't take time to read it, but in Deuteronomy chapter 21, that talked about a rebellious son that would not listen to the father. And the, uh, the judgment was quite harsh. <laughs> they were to, if, if there was sons that was not listening to their father, they, they, the father was supposed to take their sons to the elders, and the elders were going to stone them to death. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18, 21. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a parallel that that's what we should be doing now. We're under a different, a different system, okay? But I'm, my, the point is, there was something that Eli could have done other than just tell them that their, their sin was wrong, okay? Now, number two, and let's look at, let's get, go over to verse 27. <clears throat> Excuse me, because now we have a man of God, unnamed man. We don't know who. <clears throat> Excuse me. Coming to Eli, and he's now going to pronounce judgment on the house of Eli. And there's one little word in there that we're going to look at that I, that I think also is going to bring condemnation to Eli. Verse 27, <clears throat> Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And, I did not, and did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of the people of Israel? Now, I looked in every different version I could find, and every single one translated that word yourselves, plural. Yourselves. In other words, it appears to me that what is going on here, not only did Eli not constitute judgment upon his sons, but he was at some level partaking of this kicking of sacrifices. And so I think that is why Eli himself also was held and is going to find judgment here in just a few verses. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what is the pronouncement? Uh, let's continue to read. Uh, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord of God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be found be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the incense of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before me before my anointed oys. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me 
to one of the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. So several things here that comes down as the pronouncement. Uh, there would be no old man left in Eli's house. I think that's in relationship, going to be in relationship to Eli himself. He did say and also that uh, a remnant would be spared, that uh, he would not cut off every man from his house. And in fact, um, Phinehas had two sons, Ichabod and Ahitub, that uh, did carry on the line. But that God was going to raise up, in verse 35, a faithful priest, Now, this is one of those little nuggets probably you could spend a whole lot of time on. I'm just going to give you several options. Uh, There there are about three different options who this faithful priest is. Some believe it's Samuel, based primarily in the context of the book of Samuel. Others would say it's Zadok, uh, based on 1 Kings 2, 27-35. Others would say it's Jesus Christ himself in Hebrews chapter 5. I think that's an interesting thing to look at. I just don't have time to to delve into it uh, today, but that God, we do know that God now has pronounced that there, he is going to raise up a faithful priest. So the pronouncement is Eli's house is going to fall. That's, a, that's the part that we're going to focus on uh, for the rest of the time here. Now, this brings back <clears throat> um, uh, uh, also the story of Aaron. Remember the story of Aaron and Aaron's sons? Uh, Nadab and Abihu, I believe is how you pronounce it. And they were uh, giving to the Lord strange fire according um, to the passages in Numbers and Leviticus. And God brought immediate judgment on his sons as well. We have kind of a parallel thing going on here with Eli. And so now we move on to chapter 4. And I'm not going to read this. I'm just, I'll try to recount the story. So we've got the pronouncement that there's going to be judgments on the house of Eli. And in chapter, th- chapter 3, gives the story of Samuel's call. We're going to move on to chapter 4, which talks about how this judgment is carried out, at least in part. Now, here's, this, here's the, the old Philistines come into play again. The Philistines are oftentimes uh, at odds with Israel or vice versa. And so Israel and the Philistines uh, go out for battle. And Israel goes out for battle, and uh, 4,000, I think, get slaughtered, okay? So Israel comes back, and uh, they say, that's not good. <laughs> We've got to do something. And so what they decide to do is to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and let's take it on out to battle with us. Well, <clears throat> so they take it on out to battle, and the Philistines see this. And the Philistines say, uh-oh, we're in trouble, <laughs> probably have heard accounts of maybe the times of Jericho or whatever it may be, maybe the times uh, in Egypt. But they really think they're in trouble and they're shaking in their boots for a little bit. But then some brave Philistine says, let's go get them anyway. <laughs> well, this is one of those stories of Israel that, you, you know, it doesn't, they, they get slaughtered again. So they've got the Ark of the Covenant out there with them. Philistines destroy thousands more of them. Not only that, then they take the Ark of the Covenant. They take the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the, the, what's happening here is, because ha- taking the Ark in the battle is not, it, that had happened before. That happened at the time of Jericho, when they went around the walls of Jericho. So that in itself is not a problem. But what the problem is, is God is looking for faithful hearts. God is looking, He wants to win the battle. And He wants to be the one that, that is, uh, is where the nation of Israel is placing their trust. They weren't doing that. 
they used it as a good luck charm. I guess is the best way to describe it. They were thinking, hey, we got the ark. Let's, that'll surely give us some uh, victory. It's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for us to use him as a good luck charm. He's looking for us to live, a, to be faithful to him and to, to worship him. And so among those that are killed are Hophni and Phinehas. They were, they were killed in that, that battle when the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And then let's read um, in chapter 4, verses 12. This is after the battle has happened, and now they come back to tell Eli. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 4. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. Well, that's good. <laughs> so the man came to tell it, tell it in the city, and the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 80, 98 years old, and his eyes were set, so he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line indeed. I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of, Covenant, Ark of God has been taken. Then he mentioned, when he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. And there's the story of Eli and his house. So, now, what do we do with this story? Um, you know, when we look at applying these types of things to our lives, well, let me back up just a little bit. When we come to the Bible, when we come to the Bible, the first thing that we need to do when we sit down and we read it and we study it, we need to figure out what the Bible says. <laughs> okay, we can't do that unless we read the Bible, right? We've got to figure out what the story is, what the text is saying. And once we do that, then we've got to find the meaning in the text. What is this text trying to convey? And then once we do that, and then only do, when we do that, can we come and get an application from that text. Now, there's one text, there's one meaning to the text, but there could be multiple applications to the text. And so there's many applications that can be made, and the one that I'm going to make you may or may not uh, be expecting, one that's typically made in this, and I think it's a, it's a genuine application, is the, the responsibility of the, parent, uh, the father in his household. I think there's certainly some things we can learn there. But I think there's some bigger issues that, uh, uh, that I think we can use as, as way of application. And the, two, the first thing is the idea of the holiness of God. The idea of the holiness of God. Now, when you think about the attributes of God, uh, they're all, at some level, very difficult to grasp. I mean, how can, you, how can you really understand that God knows everything, for instance? That's a very difficult thing to, to grasp. We might say that there is no thing God does not know. That might be one way we try to, try to understand it. But when we talk about the holiness of God, it is, I think, one of the, the attributes. It's really the attribute of attributes. It's, a, it's the attribute of God that really describes a, a summation of all the other attributes. When we understand His omniscience, His, his uh, omnipresence, uh, all of these things, His, his, his absolute goodness, 
When we understand all those things, He is holy. He is apart from us. I think there's two ideas that come into holiness. One is kind of the moral purity aspect, but it's also the transcendence. We talk that God is transcendent and He's imminent. God is uh, completely different from us, but yet He's also personal. He's imminent. He's, he's a, he is a, a personal God. So when we talk about His holiness, uh, J.I. Packer I think uh, quotes it kind of summarizes it probably better than I ever could. And here's what he ta- says about the, the idea of the holiness of God. The word signifies about God every excuse me, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. It covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection. And thus is an attribute of all attributes, pointing to the godness of God at every point. Every facet of God's nature and every aspect of His character may be properly spoken of as holy, just because it is His. Um, I think of a couple passages immediately come to mind when you think about the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6, remember? Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Or the uh, the passage in Job, when Job, the, God finally answers Job, uh, he says, uh, Who is this that darkness counsel uh, my words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and instruct me. There's a real, and then God goes on to talk to Job about all the different things that Job has no clue about. How, where were you when the foundations of the earth was laid? And so on and so forth. When the, 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 the doe are giving birth to the fawn and just numbers of things. The holiness of God. And so I think any time when we take a look at God, and let's, let's talk about this just a minute. Why is the... A.W. Uh, Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, which I highly recommend. It's a very thin book, but a very concise uh, book describing the nature of God. Begins his book with this idea that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. <laughs> okay. The, what, the, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. In other words, what we, how we see God, if we do not see, see Him as, as He really is, then we're taken away from His holiness. Okay? Let me give you a few examples, some subtle, some extreme. Uh, maybe it'll kind of help uh, get the picture I'm trying to portray here. Do you remember what year was it uh, uh, that Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa was doing the baseball, you know, and they were hitting home runs left and right, and we won't worry about the steroids things right now. But remember how, I remember Mark McGuire one time interviewed, not particularly, I didn't ever know him as a man of faith, and still don't, but he used the term, um, you know, I'm just doing everything I can, and just somehow, you know, the man upstairs is helping me. And that phrase, the man upstairs, and we may use it in different ways, but I know the way he was using it, it really uh, humanizes who God is, the man upstairs. If, if we're just thinking of God as being a glorified man, we, we're missing it, guys, <laughs> right? Okay? So that's kind of a, that's one extreme. You know, to take that into a, a more, um, I guess, explicit example, think of Mormonism. What does Mormonism do? They, have you, has anybody ever been to Salt Lake City in the Mormon Temple? Anybody, a few of you been there? Okay, yeah. Well, I was there a few years ago. I've been there several times, but I, I went there and they have a museum there. 
And this tells you everything you need to know about, one painting tells you everything you need to know about what they view, how they view God. You go through there, and there's this painting, and it's a beautiful painting of this older guy with a beard, okay, long flowing robe, and standing beside a Jesus-looking figure. Well, what that is, is the Father and the Son, you see. Because in the Mormon view of things, God is nothing more than an exalted man. Okay, that's, that's an extreme example uh, of, of taking away from the holiness of God. Extreme example. Uh, more common, common is probably not the right word. Maybe as we now look inside the church, evangelic, the church of today, uh, word faith comes to mind. That idea of, 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 of really missing who the character of God is or some that you may or may not be aware of, something called open theism, this idea that uh, God really doesn't know the future. It's really open. These things take away from the holiness of God. And ultimately, they're going to come down and work out in our lives. Think about you know, when we face uh, different circumstances in our life, whether it be tragedy or just normal day life. <clears throat> it is important for us to have a, have a good understanding of the holiness of God and it puts, ourself, puts, our, to, puts us in the proper place of worship before Him. And, you know... As I get older, <laughs> and I, I don't know about wiser, but I'm getting older, uh, but, and, and, you, and I continue, this is just a, kind of a personal thing here, you continually, I, I continually see the holiness of God. Let me give you an example. I used to have this idea, and I think it's just recently changed, I'm still kind of in flux here, but that if I didn't know about a sin, somehow there's no guilt there, there's no shame. Now, my devotion in Leviticus, <laughs> that is not the case when it came to those sacrifices. They were to give sacrifices even for sins they didn't know about. And that's kind of a humbling thing. And so as I begin to think about what kind of God I serve and the holiness of this God that I serve, my chasm, that it, it doesn't get bigger because it was already big, but I view it as much, much bigger than I once thought. But what also that does is the cross of Christ gets much bigger. And what Jesus Christ did for me um, becomes even uh, a larger and significant event, if that's possible, in my life. So the holiness of God, I think we see that. Um, Hophni and Phineas um, misjudged or didn't have a proper view of the holiness of God. Now the second um, application I'd like to draw deals with this idea of sacrifices and kicking at the sacrifices. Now, when we look at the story of Hophni and Phinehas, it's obviously in the Old Testament. It's a different time. It's a theocracy. We don't do the sacrifices now. But there is a, the New Testament has drawn some parallels to the Old Testament sacrifices that I think can be helpful when we try to apply this to our life. And that is this idea of, um, of giving using our spiritual gifts, giving our bodies as living sacrifices. Um, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and turn to that. Somewhat of a familiar passage to some. Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. 
Like the NIV talks about it, says, uses like in view of God's mercy. Now, before we continue to read, now let's think about this idea of mercy that, uh, that, that God has brought about. And from a standpoint of Jesus Christ himself, in many places, in Hebrew, and especially in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called our high priest. He's the one that gave the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, he, he, he gave the sacrifice, he administered the sacrifice, but he also was the sacrifice. But this idea that Jesus being our high priest and giving us great mercies uh, by, by doing that, by the mercies of God to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many... Are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, one of another. Since we have gifts that differ accordingly to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So the idea here that I'm trying to portray, and I don't know how good a job I'm doing, but I'm trying, is the idea that the sacrifices that we're now called to give as New Testament believers is the, test, the sacrifice of our life, and specifically giving of our spiritual gifts. Now, this is just one listing of the spiritual gifts. There's three others in Scripture. Some say they're complete. Some say they're not. That's not my point today. My point is that, that, that as New Testament believers, we do not want to kick at the sacrifices of God. And I think the way that we, we would do that is if we're not, if somehow in our spiritual, using or lack thereof of our spiritual gifts uh, is not honoring to God. Um, let, me, let me give you an example, a few examples here. Um, spiritual sacrifices... The, of our of our of our um, uh, spiritual gifts are to be given, and again the idea back in Hophni and Phineas, remember what was one of the problems? They didn't allow the giver to give; <laughs> they took from the giver, and I think that is a problem, and not not in this church. In fact, you know things like money, I very much appreciate, and I think is you know there's the there's the box, there's the offering box. It allow, it allows us to go give the money, and I think. Um, in church, in the church, uh, the big church, I think that can tend to be a problem. You know, I, I don't know if you're like me, but boy, I get tons of things just constantly asking for money. Now, asking for money, I don't, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying that. But sometimes the way it's done, it seems to be more giving, <laughs> grabbing, than uh, giving. It, it really takes the joy away from the giver. Let me give you one example, uh, again, kind of an extreme example, but uh, this person's book you can find in your, your local Christian bookstore, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> um, this, <clears throat> this is a quote from the website. When you give $60 or more, 
you will not only be honoring God by giving something sacrificially from your heart, but you will also receive a special Day of Atonement resource package as you honor God on His holiest days with a willing heart. Now, that seems to me to be crossing the line. They're taking the Day of Atonement and trying to get money from that. The Day of Atonement had, it had to do about the, the sin, the, the, the sin being put on the, the goat and the goat being sent out of the village and the sin being carried away. Things like that don't allow the giver to give. That's kind of a corporate uh, problem, I think. Uh, within the church in general. But now let me get a little bit more specific in it from an individual standpoint. How is it that we as individuals could possibly kicking at the sacrifices that we are to be giving by the use of our spiritual gifts? And I came up with three, and I'll quickly go through these. Um, one is that I want another spiritual gift. I want somebody else's spiritual gift. Um, I'll use myself as, again as an example. Um, and it was mentioned in Romans chapter 12, the gift of leadership, okay? I really envy, <laughs> I mean, it's more than just appreciate, I, I envy uh, those of you, and there's, there are some I know in this, or in this group that have the gift of leadership, and there's a real desire sometimes on my heart, I want that, you know? I want that gift, why didn't I get that one? Well, you know, I, there's certainly no, no problem with appreciating the gifts. Uh, but when it crosses over like I know it did in my, ha, does sometimes in my own heart, I'm really what I'm doing is I'm kicking at this, the, the, the gifts of God has, has given me. When I want somebody else's in such a way that I'm not really appreciating that God has gifted me just the way he wanted to. Second way that I think we could possibly kick uh, the spiritual gifts Uh, kick at the sacrifice of our spiritual gifts is that we simply don't offer them. We just don't give them. There's a a lot of, uh, there's a mentality out there, um, unfortunately, that that has this idea, and I know a lot of people this way, and uh, it's really sad, is I'm saved. What else matters? Hey, I'm going to heaven. You know, very pragmatic response. Jesus, and, and I don't doubt that. I'm not questioning that at all. That's not the question. But there's just a sense of I'm done. No, we're just beginning. <laughs> Once you're saved, you, we're just beginning the life of, of service. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer called that idea cheap grace. <laughs> just give, it, give me the grace and uh, don't, don't bother me with the, uh, the calling. So I think that's a second way. I think a third way that, uh, and I think, I think this is, is prevalent as well, is that we undervalue the gifts that we have. I think sometimes we undervalue the gifts that we have. Sometimes... Um, you know, you look at some of these gifts that are even listed here in chapter 12 of Romans, giving and helping and showing mercy. Giving and helping and showing mercy. Now, um, you know, those don't sound real glamorous necessarily, but they're, 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 some of us, I mean, we're all called to do these things. Keep in mind that we're called to do these things. But some people, God is specially gifted to give and to serve. And to show mercy. And I know from, again, you know, showing mercy is not my gift. <laughs> I, I, I know I need to, but I know it's not my gift. But some of, you have that mer- some of you have that gift. And you need to balance out guys like me that I have the gift of wrath, you know. <laughs> not a gift, <laughs> right? 
So we need you guys to show mercy. <laughs> the body of Christ desperately needs it. And so, so we don't want to undervalue whatever gifts we have, whatever God-given abilities that we have. And I want to close. I started kind of with the idea of story. I want to close here with, I guess it is a story. It was a TV animation. I work best off of children's shows. That's about, about my level. And the story of the little drummer boy. Remember the story of the little drummer boy? Uh, and the, I guess his parents were raided or something, and, uh, and he, he was left alone. And I just remember, it's been a long time since I've seen him, but he's walking around the desert <laughs> with his drum. But uh, I'll read the song, and, and, and I think you'll get my point. I'll leave out the perumpa pum pums <laughs> Guess we can get, uh, <laughs> get, the, get the drummer up here. Come, they told me, a newborn king to see, our finest gifts we bring to lay before the king. So to honor him when we come, perumpa pum pum <laughs> I had to throw that one in. I'm sorry. It just wasn't. <laughs> okay. Little baby, I'm a poor boy too. I have no gift to bring that's fit to give the king. Shall I play for you on my drum? Mary nodded. The ox and the lamb kept time. I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. Then he smiled at me, me and my drum. Let us not kick at the spiritual sacrifices. Let us use our spiritual gifts and let us play our drum. Let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot of ground today, and Father, I just pray that um, I've accurately represented uh, this text, and Father, that uh, I know as I studied it these past weeks and uh, read, the your holiness became very clear, uh, that what you ask is what you expect. Father, that your ways are the correct. And Father, that um, we need to give our spiritual sacrifices uh, out of our heart. And Father, we pray that we won't kick at those spiritual sacrifices. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would help me to, um, to, to come closer to you each and every day. And Father, that you will... Um, uh, guide me uh, and uh, guide us as we uh, live this life. In Jesus' name, amen.